0: Let's read together from James, chapter 5, verse 7 to 20. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, brothers and sisters, do not swear not by heaven, or by earth, or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no, otherwise you will be condemned. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins.
1: Thank you so much, Alina. Well, if you're at home, please do keep your Bible open or your phone open there to James chapter 5. We're finishing up a series on this great letter of the New Testament, which has been full of surprises and continues to be today. And I have to say as I I start, isn't it hard to be patient? Don't you find that? Isn't it hard to be patient? Any children watching, I wonder if you find it hard to be patient. I remember when I was a little boy at school, we used to do a, a, a kind of a project or an experiment to see if you could grow cress and cress is one of the easiest things to to grow and you put the seeds in a little cup and you take it home put it on the window and then usually the cress will grow but I remember as a young child going back every five minutes and poking around the cress seeds and saying why hasn't it grown yet why hasn't it grown yet you know and cress is fast growing and parents saying now leave it leave it for a day two days three days then you will see but this is, I think, our experience of life, especially uh, when we're growing up. Everything from waiting, watching bread, waiting for it to toast, to watching the clock, waiting for the boring workday to end, or watching the calendar and wishing that it was Christmas time already. It's, it's just, we, we feel in our lives, we're frustrated, we're impatient, we wish things would come quicker. And parents often have to teach their children, you just got to be patient. Part of maturity is learning to be patient and understanding the seasons of life and how things, good things come to those who wait. And I've lost count of the number of times I've had to try and explain this to our own children. But the thing about patience is this. It must be learned. It must be learned. It doesn't just fall into your lap. Now, as James finishes his majestic letter, this incredible letter in the New Testament, he reaches for some parting words for his readers. And this letter had gone very wide. We know from the opening part of the book that it was sent to the 12 tribes, uh, the exiles, who were scattered in the diaspora among the nations. So it had gone to the west and to the east, to all the communities where the Jews were living, as a word from the big leader of the Jerusalem church. What is he going to say as he finishes? And he reaches for some some parting words what can he say to equip his his readers for the life of faith to follow jesus christ in their generation what can prepare them to live for jesus in the real world and you know this whole book has been about reality spiritual reality faith that has legs and walks faith that is work that works and so james now comes to the end and and he says learn patience and you think, oh, that doesn't seem particularly dramatic. Yeah, you've got to be patient. This is his final word to us. It, it doesn't seem like a grand finale, does it? But actually, as James unpacks this teaching and as we're going through it together today, I think we will discover that patience is a profound key to a life that is rich, growing and satisfied and to spiritual maturity to learn Patience. Patience, it turns out, is vital. So much so that James actually repeats, underlines, and highlights this lesson. Have a look there in chapter 5, verse 7. He begins with the instruction Be patient, then, brothers and sisters. Verse 8 You too be patient and stand firm. Verse 10 Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering. Verse 11, you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. I think we're getting the message here. James is telling us we need to learn to be patient. Now, the context of this teaching in the previous verses, particularly chapter 5, verse 1 to 6, and the end of chapter 4, is that many, many of the Christians were suffering at, at the hands of the rich In an unjust society most of the christian church then and now in the world are is made up of people who are poor or who are not on the the rich side of of life and these christians were often suffering great injustice they were really struggling in a society where the rich were favored how can a person bear up under such conditions and not be crushed now james doesn't say you know just accept it and don't do anything but he's At the heart level, his teaching is this. We've got to learn how to be patient in the suffering of life. We've got to learn patience in the suffering of life. And we all know that that doesn't come naturally. So there are three keys here to remember. We've got to remember the divine timeline. We've got to remember the divine presence. And we've got to remember to maintain integrity the divine timeline, the divine presence, and maintain integrity. First key uh, is to remember the divine timeline. This is how we grow in patience. Look again at verse 7. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm. Why? Because the Lord's coming is near. Now what is this coming? The whole Bible uh, points forward to a day, sometimes called the final day or the day of judgment, when God will return to the world and put it to rights. He will restore justice. He will restore the whole of creation. He will divide people between those who will be saved and those who will be forever lost. And God will put all wrongs right. He will restore his world in such a way that there will be no more sorrow sickness or suffering. And that final day is the thing that the suffering people of God look forward to all through the Old Testament and in the exile and the church of Jesus Christ looks forward to now. And so we look forward to the day when the Lord returns. Now the thing that Christians know is that the Lord returning is the Lord Jesus Christ. First time, his first coming was in humility. He took on our flesh and became a baby, born and laid in a manger and Lived a life, a perfect life that we should have lived. Died the death that we deserve. Died a humble slave's death on the cross. But when he returns next time, it will not be in humility. It will be in glory. And every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that he is Lord. That is the second coming of Jesus Christ. The day of the Lord. And at that point, all will be well. And all manner of things will be well. So the first key to to learning patience, friends, is to remember the divine timeline. Jesus is coming back. Whatever you're struggling with, whatever you're suffering with, if it's injustice, uh, financial problems, health issues, relationship issues, uh, whatever it is, persecution, Jesus is coming back and he will put all wrongs right. So James says, to give an example, just think about a farmer. Just think about a farmer. And, I mean, we, most of us here live in the city. We, live, we don't see farms very often. But you know what farms look like. You've got a field or a bunch of fields. And there's the farmer. And he's out there come daybreak. And he's driving up and down in a tractor, churning up the furrows of the ground and sowing seed or crops or whatever. And, and then he, he finishes his work and he's done it all. And what have you got at the end of the day? Basically nothing you've got nothing. And then the next day comes and it's a little bit like me as a child in my crest, there's still no shoots. The farmer has to be patient, has to wait days, weeks, months, finally, the crop will come and the harvest will be great. But the farmer knows that there has to be patience. And so the farmer, it says here, waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. This is the first rains of the season in Palestine and the last rains so it's the full season and the farmer knows that the last rains are coming but the harvest won't be here until they do so James says to us just think about the farmer for a long time it looks like nothing is happening and then finally the heart the fruit of the the earth will come and he says having done that establish your hearts verse 8 the, the Bible we've, we're reading from says be patient and stand firm can also be translated, establish your hearts, be grounded, be solid, like the farmer, knowing that the Lord will come. The harvest will come, the good things are coming in the future. We can be strong now because of the promise of the future. So let me ask you friends, right now, can you just call to mind the most difficult situation you're currently facing? Can you call to mind the thing that is is just so frustrating to you and unresolved? That thing that gnaws away at you? Perhaps it's something that's very painful in your life. You wish it was resolved. If only you could sort this thing out. Please, Lord, fix it. But he hasn't fixed it yet. I, I don't know what it is. Now think about that thing. And now ask the Holy Spirit to help you establish your heart with the truth that Jesus is coming back and help you learn patience. That's the first key is remember the divine timeline. The second one is, is actually quite sobering. It's remember the divine presence because James now turns from the idea of the Lord's coming as a reassuring thought, which it surely is. And now he, he changes, kind of changes the angle and he says that the Lord's coming, the Lord's nearness Is actually a challenging thought. Here's what he says. Look at this. Um, Verse nine. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Now, I guess we've all had that embarrassing moment at some point where you were talking about another person. And you didn't realize that they were in the room and they could hear you or they were sitting behind you or they came they came into the room. And, and you know, that, that embarrassing moment and you were thinking, what have I just said? I wish I could eat my words. I wish I could, the ground would open and swallow me up. You know, it, it, it's just the, the most embarrassing, awkward moment. Now, just imagine you are having a moan about another Christian, tearing them down, criticizing them, um, you know, speaking ill of them. And you open the living room door and there is Jesus Christ. And he's heard it all. And he just looks you in the eye and doesn't say anything. You would go, ah. James says here, don't grumble against one another. The judge is standing at the door. See, James has been really concerned about the theme of speech all the way through his letter. Pete Horlock gave us a tremendous sermon on this a few weeks ago. If you haven't heard it, do go back and watch that one. Speech is so important. And he says this thing here, which is at first glimpse quite a, a, a strange gear change. He suddenly says, don't grumble against one another. And you think, well, you're grumbling. Yeah, it's kind of a minor thing, isn't it? It's not a huge sin. But it is to James. And it is to the rest of the Bible. This is one of the big problems with the Israelites rescued in the wilderness, was their grumbling. Moaning, complaining, because grumbling is one of the chief sins that destroys community. It undermines relationships and it tears unity asunder. But grumbling seems so innocent, doesn't it? You know, that time where another Christian irritated you, offended you in some way. Uh, Maybe they were rude, maybe they were thoughtless. They did something that wound you up. You felt upset and angry. Man, if you're honest, you were a bit self-righteous about it. But instead of going to that person and working it through with them and and humbly saying, look, help me take the plank out of my own eye before I address the speck in your eye, you actually went and told your friend or your, your spouse or your family member or maybe a few people because you were really upset about it. And now what's happened is that your words, your grumbling, your complaint has been planted in your friend's ears like a seed and it's still in there and it's not good and it can grow and do really harmful things to relationships. The biggest cause of church division, unhappiness and churches splitting and the witness of a church being undermined that I've ever seen over the years is people complaining against one another unchecked grumbling can undermine the foundation of a church community as surely as Japanese knotweed can undermine the foundation of a building we bought a flat as a church a few years ago and one of the things that came up in the the surveyors report was that there was the presence of something called Japanese knotweed in a a field near the building it wasn't actually in the building it was it was nearby And the surveyor brought this up, and we thought, what's the problem? This beautiful Japanese knotweed, which was brought to England, I believe, by the Victorians because it was so pretty, actually can get into the foundation of a building and absolutely tear it apart. It's a serious risk if you've got Japanese knotweed. And our grumbling can do the same. Now, why does James bring this up here? You know, we've noticed this, haven't we, in the letter. James does these strange sort of gear changes, and you think, what is this? What's the link? Well, the context of the chapter, remember, is suffering. People whose lives are under intense pressure. And they're, they're struggling with things, and James is having to urge them to be patient. And if you think about it, we're much more prone to grumbling, aren't we? We're much more prone to be critical of other people when life is stressful, when we are under intense pressure. James says, brothers and sisters, uh, don't grumble. Don't grumble against one another. Remember the judge, the divine presence. Imagine that Jesus himself was listening to your conversation. What would you say? You wouldn't want to be judging someone else in your speech and then find yourself judged by the judge of all mankind. James then talks about those who have suffered patiently and suffered well. He talks about the prophets, and many prophets did. And he says... You know, we count them as blessed, those who have persevered, um, those who spoke in the name of the Lord, the prophets. We, can, we consider them blessed. We, we, we consider them great people because they endured suffering patiently. Not because their lives were easy, not because their lives were, were rich, but because they persevered. And he gives one more example of, of suffering, which is the person, Job, whose life fell apart. You know, if you remember the book of Job, Satan came before God and ch- laid down a challenge. You know, of course Job loves you because his life is great. He's wealthy, he's affluent, he's healthy. He's got this lovely family. He's got these wonderful children and he's got loads of flocks and herds and a beautiful house. Of course, of course Job loves you, God. And God gives Satan permission to wreak destruction on Job's life to a certain limit. But it's pretty devastating. Job loses everything and he's stuff is stolen his house is burned down his wife's cursing him and he breaks out in boils all over and he's sitting on the ruins of his house scraping the boils with a bit of broken pot and then his friends come and, and instead of encouraging him they sort of challenge him and say well you must be at fault here what is it job struggles with this chapter after chapter he struggles and he never fully gets the answers that he wants he never really understands But Job shows us a righteous person struggling in faith with suffering, but never giving up on God. And James says, you've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord finally vindicated Job and made his life even greater than before and glorious. And then um, James says, see how the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Friends, you know, um, the way you suffer is a powerful witness to the watching world around. We we all wish our lives were easy and straightforward and maybe richer than we are, but actually that wouldn't commend the gospel. The thing that really commends the gospel is a person who genuinely suffers uh, but hangs on to God and loves God and speaks well of God and trusts God and trusts in God's deliverance in the future. That is so much more powerful than a health, wealth, prosperity message. A struggling believer who trusts God in their suffering is a powerful statement because no one can explain it away. You know, if, if, if you, every time you struggled, God miraculously sort of zapped your life and it was easy again. People can go, well, I know why, I know why he or she is a Christian. It's because their life is easy. But actually, if you struggled you, you, you bear your suffering with faith, And trust, you make a powerful statement because nobody in the world can understand that. It can win people to Christ. So we're learning how to be patient here, remember? And the first key was to remember the divine timeline. The Lord is coming back. And the second key was to remember the divine presence. He is near. He's near, so let's watch our speech. And the third one, I'm going to be quicker on this, is remember to maintain your integrity. Remember to maintain your integrity. Here we are, verse 12. Above all, says James, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. Now, what is this swearing? It's not four-letter words uh, and uh, profane foul language, but it's adding to a promise by calling on something precious all sacred that's what the kind of swearing um, we're talking about here for example people who who make a statement and then say to to back it up i swear on my mother's life you ever heard someone say that now in the time of jesus in the time of james people would, might make a, a statement or a promise and they would swear by god's name or i swear by the temple or i swear by this or that but actually. It's suspect this kind of swearing because you shouldn't need to add to your word because your word should be reliable and honest. A Christian's word should be truthful, clear and straightforward. Yes should mean yes. No should mean no. There's no wiggle room in this kind of thing. And again, James says judgment is in view. You could be condemned if your words are Deceptive, manipulative, not truthful to what you you meant. Now, again, what is the connection between this statement here and what has come before? Remember, the people are struggling, they're suffering, they're under pressure. And in such situations, we can be more tempted, can't we, to cut corners ethically. We can be more tempted to fudge the truth or say things that weasel out of something to avoid a hard situation or a conflict to get out of trouble we can be more tempted to bend the rules ethically uh, because we're trying to regain some control over our lives and what James is saying here is remember to maintain your integrity even though it's hard Psalms talk about someone who a man who keeps his word even when it hurts now you know, our deeper problem is that we're not sure we can really trust God. We're not sure we can fully trust him. Is he really there for me? You know, I, don't, I just, when it comes down to it. And verse 11 reminds us of the essence of God's character. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. He is very compassionate and merciful. This echoes the language of Deuteronomy 34, where Moses asked uh, the big request, Lord, let me see you. And, and God said, yeah, "It's too much for for me for you to see me. No human can see God in all His glory and survive. It's too awesome, too holy. But I will hide you in the cleft of a rock, and I will pass by you, and you will see the the, the, the back quarters of My glory." And as God passed by, He declared His name, the Lord Yahweh Yahweh. And in that statement, He described His character, and He said. He was the God who is compassionate and merciful. He's revealing the essence of who he is in his heart. You see, the Lord has compassion on all that he has made, but how much more do you think he has compassion on his little children? How much more do you think the Lord has compassion on those for whom Christ died? Do you not think that he looks upon your pitiful state, your suffering, your deep struggle, with a heart of love. Do you not realise that God has only allowed this suffering into your life for good, for your good? Do you not realise that he only intends it to beautify you and to make you more glorious and more like Jesus Christ? Do you not realise that God will not allow suffering in your life to continue for one moment longer than it is necessary and that he will never leave you or forsake you that he constantly looks upon you with loving regard and he wants to hear from you so we can trust him stand firm establish your heart stop grumbling against fellow believers they're not so very different from you and hold yourself ourselves to the highest standards of integrity remember james's main point here is learn patience Learn patience. We're learning here how we can grow in it. But surely this is just too difficult on our own, isn't it? I don't find it easy to be patient. I'm sure you don't. And that's right. It is too difficult. So my second point and final point, a bit quicker, is, is that James points out two great resources for our growth in patience. And they are to pray much and stick together. Pray much and stick together. So prayer and community are resources to help us grow in Patience. Notice what he says in verse 13, 14, which is that we've got to surround everything in our lives with prayer. Verse 13, is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you ill? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them. In other words, In all the changing scenes of life, in trouble and in joy, the praises of our God should still our hearts and tongues employ. To quote an old hymn, surround everything with prayer. If you're in trouble, you've got problems, it doesn't matter what they are, pray about them, bring them to your heavenly Father and pray about them with your your Christian friends, your brothers and sisters. But then if you're happy, if life's going great, your emotions are buoyant, things have turned out well, whatever the good news was, well, don't just forget about God. Sing songs of praise. Bring, bring, bring the good stuff to him in prayer as well. And what about your body? If you're sick, you're physically ill, maybe so ill that you can't get out of your bed, James says you've got to pray about it in community. Call the elders of the church, and they should come and pray over them and anoint them with oil. Now, I'm going to speak about this anointing with oil in just a moment, but first of all, let's get the main point here. It's about surrounding our lives with prayer. So that they're permeated through and through with it. So that we live constantly in an atmosphere of God-directed relationship. Tom Wright, who was a Bishop of Durham and one of the leading New Testament scholars uh, of our generation, writes this. Prayer isn't just me calling out in the dark to a distant or unknown God. Prayer means what it means and does what it does. Because God is very near to those who draw near to him. Heaven and earth meet. Heaven and earth meet when in the spirit someone calls on the name of the Lord. And it means what it means and does what it does. Because God's new time has broken into the continuing time of this sad old world. So that the person who's praying stands with one foot in the place of trouble and sickness and sin. And with the other foot in the place of healing and forgiveness and hope. You see that image? When you're praying, you've got one foot in this world and one foot in God's future. The world to come. Prayer then brings the future to bear on the former. Prayer is the place where heaven and earth meet. Where God's will is done and his kingdom comes. That's how important prayer is. It's mind-blowing. It is an incredible privilege, isn't it, that at any given moment, right now, Christian can whisper in the ear of the one who sustains the entire universe. And that on hearing that voice of that Christian, God's hands may move as a result. Why don't we pray? Don't we realise this? You know, this is a whole lot bigger than just saying your prayers. Or going through a list on your phone. Your Heavenly Father is waiting to hear your rambling, lisping incoherent prayer and he knows what you mean and he listens with absolute attention and total wisdom now that's the main point here let me say it again if we're going to grow in patience remember we've got to remember the divine timeline we've got to remember the divine presence we've got to uh, maintain our integrity but now we're learning to, to grow in patience we've got to be people of prayer but what is going on about this stuff about the sick person calling the elders getting anointed with oil we're going to have just a sidebar here Uh, verse 14 again let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the lord and the prayer offered in faith will make the ill person well the lord will raise them up if they have sinned they will be forgiven my word what's this about (laughs) now the first point i want to make is that it's not completely clear so we would be unwise to be too dogmatic there are two main uh, routes to understand what is meant by the oil here. And it's either that on the one hand, the oil was used for health and hygiene purposes. Or that the oil here has a symbolic spiritual uh, meaning. Now, if if we were to interpret it as oil being useful for health and hygiene, remember the Jesus parable of the Good Samaritan, you know, the... the uh, the guy who's on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho and he falls in among the bandits and they, they rob him and they beat him terribly and they leave him for dead in the ditch. And then the priest and the Levite go by and then the good Samaritan comes. You remember the story. And what does the Samaritan do? He puts the man on his own donkey and binds his wounds and he boils on oil. In other words, in, in the, 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 the medicine of the time, the, the kind of what you'd have in your home Uh, first aid kit you could use oil uh, to soothe wounds and help in the healing process and that would be if that was what it means here that would be very much something of its time to mean the elders come and pray but they bring some kind of healing ointment or soothing medicine but the other way of understanding this which i think is more likely is that the oil is a symbolic thing that sets the person apart for commitment to god oil was poured on people when they were being uh, appointed for particular offices in the old testament so the king would be would would be anointed with oil uh the prophet would be anointed with oil as a way of sort of separating that person apart and, and saying we want god's blessing to pour on them and i think that latter is more likely in this context that the elders of the church aren't coming to do some medicine but they're coming to pray, to really focus in prayer on this person who was very sick, and to ask for God to give that person his uh, healing and blessing. And therefore, I, as I've read this and thought about it, think we ought to do more of this as a church. Um, Obviously, that practice about oil and so on needs to be thought through by the the leaders of our church. But my own view is that we've probably not done enough uh, going to the sick and praying with them as, as we could have done as an eldership. But I also want to point out that there's nothing specially holy or specially healing or some sort of magical about the oil itself. No one gets healed in the New Testament after being anointed with oil. Jesus doesn't have to anoint someone with oil to heal them, neither did the apostles. If you think about all the healings in the New Testament, nobody has to have oil on them first. So this is not some kind of new prerequisite uh, spiritual step. But it is symbolic that we are committing this person to God and trusting God in faith. That to do what he will so the next question is what does it mean here when it says the prayer offered in faith will make the ill person well the lord will raise them up does it mean that if you only have enough faith you're guaranteed a healing now some people have read it in that way and they've been deeply disappointed and brokenhearted and some have even lost their faith because they had great faith they prayed and prayed and prayed and then they continued to be sick and died but that cannot be a correct understanding, can it? There are plenty of people in the Bible and in history who have great faith but get sick and die. The Apostle Paul writes to his great teammate and co-worker Timothy and says, Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach because of your frequent illnesses. So there's just Paul using everyday medication of his time. He's not coming and praying in great faith. Paul in another place talks about leaving one of his co-workers, I think he's called Trophimus, in a place because he was so sick he couldn't travel. So we're not talking about a a situation here in the Bible where you know, if you only have enough faith, you'll always get healed. The prayer of faith is essentially that you have faith in God, not in your own faith. That God's will is perfect and God's will will be done. That God can heal now, and he will heal in the last day but he will choose the perfect path now that does not mean that prayer is sort of fatalistic prayer can change things in the mystery of God's will look what it says about Elijah here Um, James references Elijah he says verse 17 Elijah was a human being just like us he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years Again, he prayed and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crops. Elijah was seeking God's will in his generation. You know, some of you Mancunians might think, I wish we could pray that it wouldn't rain and would stop for three and a half years, especially after this week. But the point here is that Elijah was seeking God's will and that God's will at that time was to give the land a drought that would deal with issues in the land and then give the rain. But Elijah's prayer was used in the purposes of God and was powerful and effective. So have we forgotten the power of the one we pray to? Have we forgotten to cover everything in prayer? We need constant reminders, don't we? We so often forget. So how are we going to grow in prayer? In patience. We remember the divine timeline. We remember the divine presence. We remember to maintain our personal integrity. We pray much. And finally, we stick together. Uh, We we stick together in community. And James ends his letter with these wonderful words in verse 19 and 20. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. There's a lovely picture of Jesus Christ in the, in the Gospels as the good shepherd. The good shepherd, Jesus says, is the one who lays down his life for the sheep. The good shepherd seeks and saves the lost. There may be a hundred sheep in a field, but if one is lost, the Good Shepherd will go and find the one leaving the 99 because he seeks the one who was strayed away, the one who was in danger, the one who was in danger of, of death. And the Good Shepherd carries that sheep home on his shoulders, he's so committed to that one person. And we know from the New Testament that Jesus Christ is not only the Good Shepherd, but he's the one who secured new life and forgiveness through his cross. The Good Shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. And one of the glorious things about being a church member, part of the the body of Jesus Christ, is that we get to continue his work of restoration in community. So James finishes with this final word which is we've really got to look after each other and stick together. Uh, If someone should wander from the truth and they go away from, from the faith, either through folly or through sin or from being deceived or discouraged, whatever it is, whoever turns them from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. We need each other, friends. We need the church of Jesus Christ, the community, the body, the brothers and sisters that he's brought around us to help us. Because we're all so weak, we stray like lost sheep. And in this world of trial and difficulty, we need one another. So let's pray that God will help us to grow in these ways today. Shall we pray? Loving Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd, who seeks and saves the lost and who laid down his life for the sheep. Thank you that you sought and saved us. And thank you that you've placed us in the family of God, the household of of god the body of christ the church of the living god to keep us and help us grow help us we pray especially in this area of patience how we need to learn this and show us thoughts soon that we've progressed in it and we've grown in jesus name amen